Welcome to Faith to Face, the weekly church services of Calvary Chapel Living Water in Garden Grove, California, taught by Pastor Johnny Trevino. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, the Bible says that we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Until then, we're called to read, practice, and grow in the faith that Christ set the example for. It's not in the attaining of perfection, it's the reaching for and the striving to live out the life He wanted us to lead. As we do, we sharpen our faith and we see His face in each other. We see Him faith to face. Here's Pastor Johnny. Title of our message is The First Will Be Last and the Last First. And we'll just see what the Lord has to say to us about this. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that we can come to you. And Lord, we can learn. We can learn of you. We can learn your heart. Uh, we can learn, Lord, um, even your ways, as the scripture we read this morning in Isaiah 55, that our ways, Lord, are not your ways. And so we want to learn your ways, Lord. We want to learn how to navigate in this world. So we just pray your blessing upon this time, Father. Open up our eyes, our ears, and give us ears to hear, eyes to see what your spirit says to the church this morning. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're going through the life of Jesus, and as we go through the life of Jesus, we're learning how to navigate in this world. And at times, I hope I don't give the impression, I hope it very well, that you're supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. No, you're supposed to be doing what God has called you to do. And so God, you're supposed to serve God where God has you. I like what was said yesterday at our men's breakfast. The Lord was impressing upon our brother Dan, blossom where you're planted. Just bear fruit right where you're at. Wherever the Lord has planted you, that's where he wants to uh, just have you bear fruit. And so with that, I'll open up with um, this true story that I found. Marta was a hardworking single mother. When her minister sermonized about living a life that matters, she worried that working to raise her kids and going to church wasn't enough. So on the bus to work, she made a list of other jobs she could do and volunteer work she could try. Sylvia, an elderly woman, saw the worry on Marta's face and asked what was wrong. Marta explained her problem. Sylvia said, oh my, did your minister say you weren't doing enough? No, Marta said, but I don't know how to live a life that matters. You don't have to change jobs or do more volunteer work, Sylvia consoled her. It's enough that you're a good mother. But if you want to do more, think about what you can do while doing what you already do. It's not about what you do, but how you do it. You don't understand, Marta said. I sell hamburgers. How do I make that significant? How many people do you deal with every day, Sylvia asked. Two to three thousand? Well, what have you set out to cheer, encourage, teach, or inspire as many of those people as you could? A compliment, a bit of advice, a cheerful hello, or a warm warm smile can start a chain reaction that lights up lives like an endless string of Christmas bulbs. But that's just being nice, Marta protested. Right, said Sylvia. Niceness can change lives. Marta looked at the old woman. What do you do? I was a housekeeper until I retired, Sylvia said. Now I just ride the bus talking to people. (laughs) Blossom where you're planted. Just be faithful. Where God has placed you. All right, we're going through the life of Jesus. 
And we're going to see how this ties into our Bible study. We're picking it up at verse 13. The Bible says, Then they brought little children to him, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And so the disciples see these parents bringing little children to Jesus. And it says the purpose is so that Jesus could lay hands on them and pray. Um, This account, everything that we're reading today is found in, in, in three of the synoptic Gospels. You'll find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, I chose Mark because I like how Mark uh, put a lot of things. He gave uh, a few more details than the other Gospels. We are going to be jumping over to Matthew, as I said, before the Bible study ends. But, um, so if you, if you read just all three Gospels, sometimes they'll give you like a, little, uh, a little more information than another one. And so they brought these children to Jesus so that Jesus would lay his hands on them and just pray for them and bless them. And the disciples, for whatever reason, thinks that Jesus is beyond that. And they're rebuking the parents. They're rebuking the adults who are bringing the little children. But when Jesus saw it, verse 14 says, he was greatly displeased and said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. And so Jesus rebukes them. This word here in the Greek, this greatly displeased, is a word that Jesus would only use for those who were against what he was doing, his ministry. Mostly, he would say this type of thing to the religious leaders of his day. And this would be the first and the only time that they would receive a rebuke from Jesus so sharp. But Jesus is letting them know, no, 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 you've got this thing wrong. I want the children to be able to come to me. I want the parents to be able to bring the children to me so that I can bless them, so that I can lay hands on them and give them those blessings. He says at the end of verse 14, for such is the kingdom of God. Then he goes on in verse 15, assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them and blessed them. For us to come into the kingdom is an assault to our person, to our pride, to our We think we're good. We think that we're good enough. We think that we don't need anything to be able to make it into heaven. In fact, I don't know why, but we have this idea that in heaven there's these celestial scales. There's these scales in heaven where if our good outweighs our bad, then the scale will show in our favor and God will receive us. But nothing could be further from the truth. Our goodness, the Bible declares... Our attempts at appeasing God is as filthy rags, dirty diapers, something that's a stench in the nostrils of God. And so we may be good, and we're going to see that there's a good individual that comes in the very next section of Scripture here. We may be good, but we're not perfect. And so in order to come to God the way God wants us to on His terms, we have to humble ourselves. Now, what are children in comparison to adults. Well, adults have knowledge. Adults have experience. And through that knowledge and experience, oftentimes adults think they have things figured out. Because after all, they're no longer children. Well, in contrast, children are naive in a sense. They don't have maybe the intellect, the intellectual capabilities of an adult. But they're simple and they trust. Picture a perfect parent. An individual who absolutely loves his or her children and wants to see nothing but the best 
for their children. And imagine that child coming to that parent and would that parent steer them wrong? Would that parent give them a, a bit of advice that would lead them astray, that would harm them or put them in harm's way? No. We know because that parent loves their child and this perfect parent wants to make sure that that child is getting uh, everything that it needs as it grows and they're teaching them and, and instructing them. We can sit there and say, wow, that's a good parent. Well, how much more our Heavenly Father, our perfect, the only one that is truly perfect, our perfect Heavenly Father, as we come to Him, we need to come in humility. We need to come in simplicity. We need to say and acknowledge, God, I'm growing up and I'm learning a lot of things, but I know I don't know everything and I need your help. Well, again, that's an assault to our pride. And that, that just goes against, well, no, I've got this life figured out. I can do it on my own. And God says, I want to help you. I want to lead you. I want to guide you. I want to instruct you. I want to show you the path that I have in store for you. But okay, you want to bump your head against the wall. You want to figure it out. Go ahead. Or you can come to me and I can help you. I can lead you. I can guide you. Because I love you. I love you more than you love yourself. I love you more than anybody has ever loved you. And so... Those who receive the kingdom of God will be those who humble themselves as a child. Those who acknowledge that they may, they may know a lot, they don't know everything. Now, we go on in verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came and running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may, re- may inherit eternal life? Very, very good beginnings from this young man. This is the story of the rich, young ruler. Every one of those synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that he was rich, that he was a man of wealth. Um, Matthew tells us that he was young, and Luke would tell us that he was a ruler. And he's not a a ruler of the Romans, he's a ruler of the Jews. Because we're going to see as we read on, he's keeping the Torah, at least the second half of the Ten Commandments. His relationship with his man, his fellow man, is right on the money. And so Jesus is going to call him on a lot of things. So he is, in my opinion, as I was reading and studying this week, he's not only the rich young ruler, but we can throw moral somewhere in there. He's the rich young moral ruler because He's living a life. If you were to look at him from the outside in, if you were to look at him, you would say, that's a good guy. This guy's a good guy. You ever meet anybody like that? Where you just meet someone and you're like, man, this dude's not even a Christian and he puts me to shame. This is a good guy, man. He just, he's just nice and he's gracious and he just goes out of his way for people. I needed a ride and he stepped up and gave me a ride. The best man at my wedding, he would just pick me up every morning at 4.30 in the morning. Didn't know Jesus, didn't know anything about the Lord. But he would pick me up and sacrifice to take me to work at 4.30 in the morning. That's a good guy. That's a, that's a neat person, isn't it? And there's people like that in the world. And on the heels of Jesus saying that those who will get the kingdom of heaven are going to be those who humble themselves as a child, a lot of times these good people, these people that if you were to make a comparison to other people and this person's good but this person's not as good, sometimes those good people think, well, I don't need God. I'm already good. I'm good in and of myself. I'm good for nothing. There's no reason why I'm good. I just am. And there are people like that, right? Good people in the world. But what is the good, if we were to make a point of comparison to? The good is, 
as a point of comparison to other people. I'm good compared to other people. The standard for God is perfection. And the standard for God is not other people. The standard for God is you need to compare yourself to the perfect person, to Jesus Christ himself. And all of us, as good as we may be, or as good as those people might be, all those people fall short of the goodness of God, as the Bible declares in Romans chapter 3. So he comes to Jesus and tells him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? He's doing a lot of things. And look at this individual. The world elevates this man. He is youth. He has wealth. And he has power. Not only that, he's a good guy. The world elevates those types of people and say, this is what I need to achieve or, or live for. And yet there's an emptiness in this guy. He's saying, what, what should I do? I know something's missing. There's a hole. Something's not right. What shall I do? What can I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 18, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good. I'm sorry, no one is good but one, that is God. Interesting reply that Jesus has, isn't it? I mean, this guy's complimenting him. Good teacher, what good thing must I do to get to heaven? You'd think Jesus would be like, oh, wow, what a good guy. He wants to know how to get to heaven. Here, just let me give it to you. Let me lay it out. But Jesus is always intent on the heart of the issue. And what is the heart of the issue? But the issue of the heart. The heart of the issue is always the issue of the heart. And so Jesus wants to be able to minister to this guy. If you want to know how to witness to people, if you want to know how to share God's love of salvation to people, um, John chapter 3, when Jesus talks to Nicodemus, John chapter 4, when Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, or even right here, when Jesus counsels this rich young ruler who is immoral. And so Jesus kind of comes back. Now, the cults will use this and say, look, Jesus is, is saying that he's not God because he would have said it right here. He's saying no one is good but God. Well, no, that's a fallacy. Jesus is saying one of two things by saying that there's no one good but God. He is either saying I'm no good or I am God. There's only two options. There is no one good but God. And because this guy is living the second tablet of the Ten Commandments, his relationship with man, Jesus wants to draw his attention to God because he's failing in that one area. So yes, he's got all of this stuff that's good. He's figured out this second tablet. Six of the commandments he's got nailed down. But Jesus wants to bring him back to the first table, his relationship with God. So he knows. Jesus knows what's going on. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Again, what a good guy. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. One of the reasons why he chose Mark's gospel. Mark's the only one that says that not only did Jesus look at him, but he looked at him and he loved him. With those, can you imagine just those eyes of Jesus looking? He loved him. And said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor, and you have treasure in heaven, and come, take up your cross and follow me. Now the first thing Jesus tells him is incidental. 
The next thing that Jesus tells them is universal. The incidental thing is to him specifically. All of us, Jesus is not saying this one thing you lack, go sell everything you have, give to the poor. No, this was specifically for this one individual. And there are people who struggle with wealth, people who struggle with their finances, even people who struggle with their lack of finances. Surprising to say that some people who struggle with a lack of finances tend to elevate finances above where they need to be elevated. And so this was this individual's singular struggle. That was just for him. Universal, take up your cross and follow me. So he hits him right where he's living. He meets him right where he's at. Verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And I love this about the scriptures. Only in the scriptures will you get the truth of an individual who is rich, young, and a ruler, even a moral guy from our standards. And because he's rich, it says he had great possessions. He goes away sorrowful. That's not what TV tells us. That's not what we see daily. People who have wealth, they've got it all together. They have everything that they dream of, everything that they want, everything that they've ever, you know, could even imagine. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 this guy went away sorrowful. And he had a lot of possessions. And so Jesus is nailing him where it's at. You, he could be saying, you individual who are young, rich, and powerful, and even you got your human relationships going well. You've elevated your wealth above your relationship with God. You've, you've placed your wealth on the throne of your heart. And so Jesus nails the thing that this guy is struggling with. Jesus hits him right where he needed to be hit. You've elevated this thing above me, above God, the one that is good. And we're going to see that when we get to chapter 20, that Jesus is going to say, that he's good. And so it's neat how it ties together as you read. Again, we're going in chronological order of Jesus' ministry as he walked the earth. Let's move on. Verse 23, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It would be 15th century that this idea would be written down that back in Jesus' day, there was this gate called the eye of the needle in Jerusalem. And it would be the big gigantic gate that would allow commerce to come and flow into Jerusalem. That gate would shut at night. And so if you missed it, you missed the opportunity to come into the gate. But there was this little gate that was attached to the big gate. And the little gate was enough for a man to be able to walk through unencumbered. And so if he had his camel, he would have to take all of the things that he had on his camel, all this load, this baggage. He would have to take his baggage off of his camel. The camel would have to get on its knees and kind of be pulled and pushed simultaneously to get the camel through the eye of the needle. And so a lot of people said, that's what Jesus was referring to. That's what he was talking about. He was talking about that little gate. And it's really, really, really hard for that camel to get through the eye of the needle because that's what the gate was called, the eye of the needle. And so that's what Jesus was referring to. And you know what? That's a neat story. And it's a true story. There was a gate called the eye of the needle. But the Greek word for eye of the needle, needle is a sewing needle. And the the word for camel is a real-life camel. 
And so today, I can imagine, I could probably get a camel through the eye of a needle, a real needle, give me a blender and a little bit of time, you know, and I'll, I'll pretty much probably get it in, but I don't know. I think Jesus was referring to a genuine, real, real um, camel and a needle, and we notice it by the response of the disciples. Let's pick it up. Um, and they, verse 26, were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are impossible. All things are possible. And so Jesus is saying what is impossible to man is possible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. Guys, salvation for us is impossible. For us to go to heaven in and of ourselves, it is impossible. And there's nothing that we can do. We think there's something we can do. And again, this is an, it's a slap in the face of your pride. It, it's an assault. It's like, no, come on, there's got to be something worthy here. There's got to be something good, right? And I remember the day I would be sitting in a study, and Genesis 6 would be the, the topic, that every thought was continually evil upon man. And I remember as that pastor was sharing, I was like, no, come on, there's got to be something good. He said, guys, there is nothing. There's nothing good within us. There's not one thing that is redeemable, worth redeeming, that is of value. There is nothing. I began to weep. I began to cry. I'd already been a Christian for some years. And I just thought about that. Lord, come on, there's got to be, right? I mean, I could dance or, you know, something, right? And God's like, no, you can't dance. And no, that's not even, even if you could, that wouldn't be something that I could redeem. And just that, that idea just, you know, penetrates your mind and your heart that, Lord, in spite of all of that, you still loved me? In spite of me not being able to present something to you worthy of being redeemed, you still died for me? And it puts it all on God, and it just caused me to just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. You did it anyways, huh? Wow. And so it is with this case as well. With God, it's possible. With man, an impossibility. Verse 28, And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Now, if Jesus was a man and the disciples had gotten rebuke when they brought them the little children, you know, you could sit there and say, hey, Peter, I don't think you should have said that. Jesus is already in a bad mood. I mean, <laughs> you already got told you weren't supposed to, you know, deny the little children to come to him. I don't think you should have said that. But I love Jesus' heart, not a man. Verse 29, so Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecutions with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And so instead of a rebuke, you see Jesus in the heart of God saying, Peter, I know what you've sacrificed. I know what you've given up for me. I recognize that you get ridiculed or, or that this is difficult. But trust me when I say there's nobody who has made the smallest sacrifice that is not going to be rewarded here and now and for sure in eternity. And what a blessing. You just see that. And so he, see, he ends it with, for many who are first will be last. Now jump over, if you would, with me to uh, Matthew chapter 20. And you'll see how we'll pick it up there. And again, this is just the same account continuing. But Matthew is the only one that gives us this parable of the workers in the vineyard. 
And so as we continue on with the story, we see, um, if you want to notice that this goes right in line, we'll, we'll cheat and go to the last verse. Notice verse 16. So the last will be first and the first last. And then you can see where I got my title, for many are called, but few are chosen. So this is Matthew chapter 20, starting at verse 1. The Bible says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the, in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. A denarius a day would be a day's wage. And so these are day laborers. This is a crop owner. He sends his leader, his master, his um, manager out to the, to the highways and just says, hey, tell them to come on in and then we'll pay them a, a day's wage if they work in our fields. Verse 3, and he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Now notice the first group, who started early in the morning, he said, I'm going to give you a denarius. The second group, he just simply says, I will pay you. I'll give you what is right. Verse 5. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when the evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who who, um, those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more, and they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. It is, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Jesus telling the story. So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. What this parable is speaking to is the equal opportunity of the kingdom. That all of us come and we receive, if you will, the same wage. Whether we've served the Lord for all of our life or whether we are that thief on the cross that had no time to serve the Lord. But we have access to heaven, not because of what we do, because of what we're able to accomplish, well, because it's the free gift of God. And so how dare us to think that, is, that there is somebody who is outside the kingdom, outside or unworthy of receiving the same grace that we've been able to receive. I'm going to show you guys a video clip, and then I'll come back and we'll end the study if we can do that. beginning know exactly how you work i know all of your cravings know what makes you go berserk been lying from the start just to make you play a part in my infinite rebellion against the father god hate 
everything he is and i make you hate him too make you hate him with your actions it's so easy for me to do cause you like it sin feels good for the ego you love it oh come on baby let your head going all the time i'm winding up like my perfect little puppet you're my favorite robot welcome to the show but i'm watching you and all of hell is with me too helping me make my Oh, and there is a lie that works for everyone, everyone A lie that opens up your heart so I can get me some more of your free will I'm winding you, winding you Give me the control, that's why I'm telling you Selling you anything, everything appealing to your human way of being And I use it all against you just to keep your eyes from seeing Past the life you're living, past the moment you're in Past the pleasure of your sin or the cigarette you're smoking Choking on your lust So deeply spun into my system that you won't see the light Never mind that I'm drowning you I keep deceiving you cause I don't tell you About the God in heaven Who loves you Who yearns for you Lord. I don't tell you About the freedom of
The whosoevers open up some of their uh, meetings with that video. Think about what we just went through in the scriptures. Children were brought to Jesus and the disciples were trying to hold those children back. A rich young ruler who was a moral person comes to Jesus on his knees and says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, through a series of questions, brings him around to where his heart is. And he had elevated something that this world holds up, and he goes away sorrowful. Now, we don't know if we'll see the rich young ruler in heaven. We don't have the account of what took place after that. That, that individual may very well have sat with that and then came back to Jesus at some point in his life. We, we don't have that recorded in the scriptures. And then Jesus talks about the deception of money and riches and how difficult it is for individuals who trust in money to go to heaven, to trust in something other than God, to be able to get them there. Impossible with man, but yet possible with God. And then he gives this parable and just talks about the equal opportunity that everybody has. Now, we are living in a culture where all of these things are elevated and we see a lost world all around us. Hedonism. Live for self. Live for pleasure. Live for these things that are going to bring something to your life that you think is going to be meaningful. And all the while, God has given us the message of reconciliation. To be able to see people reconciled. But the enemy is so subtle. And we think the enemy is doing this incredible work out there in the world, but I guarantee you that that same enemy is doing a work in our heart. Where we are so self-consumed and looking to ourselves and our conveniences and our comforts and how we don't want to be uncomfortable and how we don't want to deny ourselves. And we're going to heaven and so to hell with the world. And God is saying, I want to reach the world. I want to reach as many as I can. And I want to use my body to be able to do that. I want to use the people that I've pulled out of the world to be able to be my mouthpiece, my listening ear, my loving arms that reach out and embrace, my feet that will take the gospel to the world. And so again, it's, it's a hard video to watch. It, it, it stirs my heart. And as I see what's taking place in our world and in our community, I can't help but think, Lord, why? Why'd you bring me here? Why, why? I was happy just driving a little bus in Montebello, helping get people from the parking lot to church. Lord brought me here to be able to reach the people of this community. And so I want to just encourage you. Nothing's going to happen outside of prayer. Nothing's going to happen outside of prayer. And the greatest people in the kingdom of God, when we go to heaven and we look back, they're going to be individuals that bowed their knees to God and shook up the world. So God has called us for such a time as this to be able to reach out to a community, to be able to get out of our own lives for a moment and just say, Lord, here I am, such as I am. What do you want to do? One person, Lord, what do you want to do with this singular one person? And the Lord wants to pull people out of the bondage that they're in, out of the misery that they're in, out of the struggles that they're in. And the Lord wants to use a fellowship like this, small but mighty in God, to the pulling down of strongholds. And in the midst of, you will discover this secret in your life. In the midst of reaching out, you are reached. In the midst of ministering to, you are ministered to. In the midst of just, Lord, here I am, such as I am, 
Take me, Lord. Use me in any way you desire. I am that living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is the reasonable thing that you called me to do. And so this is not a church of individuals who come to a place and simply grow in the Lord and grow in the Lord and grow in the Lord to no avail. We're just not going to be that kind of church. And if we have 12 people that want to pull up their sleeves and get their hands dirty and put their hands on the plow and look forward and never look back and, and, and get it on for the Lord, then so be it. But if the Lord wants to bring individuals into this place and continue to save individuals and then watch us go out and be an army for God, then that's really what we're going to be about. So I just encourage you guys as the Lord is stirring in my heart this passion and this desire to see the world saved, starting with our community. I just encourage you guys to be in prayer about that as well. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, that we are those who have seen through the deception of Satan. And Lord, we know that we at times fall into the schemes and the plans and the subtleties of the enemy. But Lord, you bring us light. You bring us truth. You show us again, Lord, the deception in those things. And Lord, for that, we are just eternally grateful, forever thankful. Lord, I pray that your anointing would be upon this church. That, Father, that you would, behind the scenes, stir our hearts. And, Lord, that we would go out and we would just be busy about your business. That, Lord, we would blossom where we're planted. Just simply desiring to be faithful to what you've called us to. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Faith to Face, the weekly teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel Living Water in Garden Grove, California, taught by Pastor Johnny Trevino. Calvary Chapel Living Water of Garden Grove meets every Sunday at 1030 a.m. at 12732 Main Street in Garden Grove, inside the Courtyard Center in the Promenade Park at the corner of Stanford and Main Street in the heart of Orange County, just three miles southwest of the Disneyland Resort in Anaheim. To listen to this or any of the other services taught at Calvary Chapel Living Water in Garden Grove, go to our website at cclivingwater.net and click on the message link at the top of the page. Scroll down and click on the listen tab. That's www.cclivingwater.net. Or you can call the church at 714-584-5452. That's 714-584-5452. Or send an email to comments at cclivingwater.net. That's comments at cclivingwater.net. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Christian. We'll see you next time when we meet with Christ face to face.